Well, 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 welcome back to the Rose Woman Pod. I think I'll start by reading you a little piece from Dylan Thomas that ties into today's session. He writes, I could never have dreamt that there were such goings-on in the world between the cover of books, such sandstorms and ice blasts of words, such staggering peace, such enormous laughter, such and so many blinding bright lights splashing all over the pages in a million bits and pieces, all of which were words, 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 and each of which were alive forever in their own delight and glory and oddity and light. Today's guest, Gina Pell, in addition to being the head of content for a company she founded called The What, one word, The What, at thewhatlist.com, she has been a professional reader, which means she reads a book a day, and she focuses on fiction. And reading a book a day, she has become not only sort of a trend spotter looking for things that are being written now, but she writes her own lists of her favorite 20 or 30 books twice a year. The other thing that it's done is made her an extreme observer of authenticity and truth-telling in writers and in journalism and other things, and we cover a very wide spectrum of what it means to be a reader and a learner and to be curious and to stay what she calls perennial your whole life long, that in the power of the information and stories available from others is also the power to inhabit our own lives more fully. Please welcome to the Rose Woman Pod, Gina Pell. Well, it is my great pleasure and honor to welcome Gina to the pod today. She has so many things that I admire in any human being, a woman or man. And one of those is creativity, always learning. She has coined the term perennial for people who stay fresh and blooming all the time throughout their life. Uh, And her eye for beauty, her eye for something that's special is unparalleled. And I just learned in the pre-talk that she shares one of my core values, which is finding more freedom in an embodied reality. So hello and welcome. Thank you, Christine. What a nice introduction. I hope I can live up to that, <laughs> especially the feeling fresh and blooming all the time. <laughs> you know that T-shirt that you see around sometimes? I, oh God, let me be the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> That's how I feel. Exactly. Someone compliments me. I'm like, oh please, please let me let me be that. We're recording this in the middle of the second wave of shutdown pandemic in 2020. Uh, So if you're listening at some point in the future, what it feels like is we have just, we had closed down to sort of what they call flat, what they're calling now flatten the curve um, and basically limit hospital ICU admission so that there was enough bandwidth in the healthcare field to take care of the ill and to possibly cease transmission or limit transmission. And we didn't do a very good job of that in America. And so now we're in wave two. And the result is a lot of businesses are struggling Um, A lot of people have lost their jobs. 36% of Americans couldn't pay their mortgage last month. And I think for for the women that I've been talking to, it's causing a lot of inquiry into what they really value and what's on mission for them. And and, um, 
how to take the things that they're already working on or and, and, and evaluate them. Is this true or should it be pivoted or what should I do differently? And and that there's a lot of feelings that come with that. So I thought maybe we could start with that. You know, you personally as a you know beautiful innovator and you as a business leader and a convener, how has this time hit you? Well, it hit us very hard because we are in the community building business for women and we have been building women's community for the last 20 years. This is our third company doing that through content and through events. And so in the last, you know, we I would say that we're essentially, I'm the content chief and, and a co-founder of a company called The What, and we make content for women um, for both personal and professional and we started having our summits starting two years ago and it was a way for us to stay alive. Two years ago, actually more than two years ago, there were, we were in the middle of a collapse of our industry, the media industry. And when we started our company, it, it's so funny. I feel like my partner, Amy and I, Amy Parker, every time we start a company, a major collapse happened. So the first company we started, which was Splendora in 1999, in 2000, the dot-com bubble burst, the first bubble burst, and it was an absolute disaster. Following that, September 11th happened, and we had to figure out how we were, we were going to survive as a, as a digital company through all of it. And we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and just got very, we hustled, hustled, hustled to survive during that. And then our second company, um, the 2008 economic collapse happened, <laughs> you know, and uh, and we survived that uh, through a lot of hustle and and hard work. And then we started this company, and uh, in 2015, and then there was the whole media spiral, followed by the pandemic. So, um, yeah, just to pa just to pause there, this this has been we're about the same age so the yeah. dot-com burst 9-11 the the um mortgage collapse mm -hmm. you know there has been very little stability throughout our careers these are structural questions that have hit all of us and if you have any kind of a complex relationship with stability you know though sometimes i felt like where what can you count on it's not the banking system it's not the it's not the vc world the technologies are changing faster than i can keep track of so this even, when we as we progress in the conversation, even really raises a larger question about how do we respond when the outside world is chaos or unpredictable, if not mm -hmm. chaos. Well, I feel that we have, Amy and I thrive in chaos, and I, I, I believe that that's the reason why we are entrepreneurs, is because we're attracted to chaos and trying to make sense of chaos. So it doesn't surprise me that I, I actually feel panic, a healthy amount of panic. We're not totally in denial, but also energized um, by the chaos and by the uncertainty mm -hmm. and trying to problem solve our way through it. So we talked um, before in the pre-interview about all the books that I read and um, when things get very stressful, uh, I try not to drink too much wine, but I do read about a book a day. And, uh, and, and so reading and creativity really helps me get through these crises and, um, and trying to figure out what we're going to do next as a, 
as largely an events company, and now we're going to switch to digital. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. But we 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 started our company back in '99 as a as a digital company, so it's that's in our DNA, and um, and now we're going to return back to it's full circle, really, going back to where we started. Back to digital, away from live events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but I it's, love it's actually what events. I prefer. You know as, what? As, Here, as a digital I think everybody entrepreneur. needs to know this about. We, you did an event, and you brought all the furniture from your house over so that we <laughs> staged elegantly and artistically. It was so beautiful um, in San Francisco a few years ago. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Were you in the middle of moving? Was that like mm-hmm. on a? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. It was partially. I was in. The, I just so happened to be in the middle of moving, but also it saved us a lot of money, and we were bootstrapping that event. Uh, I, 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 I never wanted to go back into the events business, but it was, it was a way for us to, to physically connect with the people who followed us. And so we, we started in 2015 and, um, by 2018, we had about a hundred thousand people in our community and we hadn't really seen them face to face. So we had our first event and it was something like somewhere between 300 and 400 women came. It was it was it was beautiful. It was very difficult. We didn't make any money, but it was beautiful, and it was it was nice to see all all women coming together and to see the ways that women support each other. To I'm I'm actually making T-shirts right now that say "Lift up, uplift," and that's really the feeling that we're we're always trying to strive for, and what we see at our in our physical events. So now we're now we're back to square one, and um we're going to try to have to do this online and we're going to have to figure out how we're going to do that. I know it's something mir- miraculous and innovative will come out of it. Can we go back to what you're reading? This oh, idea yeah. that, first of all, anybody reads a book a day. I love you, <laughs> I love you, I love you. Um, but what do you find yourself drawn to? What are you reading this summer? Well, I, my, my beat is fiction. So I, I, I write two fiction lists a year, usually with my favorite picks between 20 and 30 fiction books in spring and in fall. So I only read current fiction right now. Hmm. Uh, and that's because I, I review it. So that's, that's, that's my beat. And uh, I was a literature major in college and I always thought that I was going to be a novelist, but instead I'm just a master reader, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, the- maybe the book I will, will come soon, but um, what I've been reading lately, I read, it's not on purpose. It just so happens to be what's on my list. But I read a lot of female authors. I, I, I've read this year, I think I have 25 books on my list and only maybe two or three male authors hmm. made it onto the list. And so, do you think um, that's because of the, the are there are there more women authors getting a platform with publishers now? Or is that just arising because of the sort of the direction your interests are taking. No, I, you know, I'm not, I, I wasn't specifically looking to only review uh, female fiction. Uh, how I how I choose the fiction that I'm going to read is I go through dozens of book lists from sources that I trust, you know, so of course the New York Times, but then also Atlantic and uh, New Yorker and um, a, lit, a lot of literary websites, and I'm on the board of McSweeney's, and so I, I look through all of their lists to to look through to to figure out what I'm going to read. So mm-hmm. I call through dozens of of best of lists at the beginning of the year, um, and I'm on this. I, I'm on a list of for all of the publishers of new fiction, so I, I get all the new fiction lists, and then I 
look through and I look at the uh, ratings for some of the highest reviewed new new releases coming out, and those are what I read, and those happen to be mostly women. Hmm. So it's 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 great. I read by the year, and so it's so to me that's really fascinating to see what themes are emerging every year. Hmm. And what I've noticed in the last couple of years, it's, I, I was just talking to my husband about this, and I said, you know, out of the last 20 books that I've read, Facebook has featured prominently in, in, in these novels as either an evil or something that, um, that the characters in the book are concerned about. It's, 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 it's really interesting. It's, I, I think social media creeping up into, into fiction has been, I've been seeing it uh, happen more and more. And it's, and it's, it's to me, it's like a, it's a little disturbing and depressing. <laughs> it's kind of depressing. I'm pausing on it, be like I'm having so many reactions to. I'm not thinking about the books as much as this idea of how that's become both like the stocks, the public stocks, you know, the town square where mm -hmm. people pelt tomatoes at those who state unfavorable things. Mm -hmm. um, it's become uh, an a validation, uh, gold, the five gold stars. It's become so many things in place mm -hmm. of a, a real legitimate commons mm -hmm. um, that, you know, it, it's no wonder that it's coming up in, in, in these, in novels. People write about what they know, I suppose. I'm yeah, really no, struggling I, with it personally, such a like how to get part, off of that stuff. Right. You know, I, I think it's just such a central part of our, of everybody's life, every modern person's life. Social media, mm -hmm. that that the characters in each one of these novels. I mean, even a novel that I read, which I which I thought was was amazing. It was called uh, A Burning, and it takes place in in um, in a slum in India, and and what happens in, on social media plays an absolutely pivotal role in 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 the book. And the fact that these characters have cell phones and you know they can barely afford to eat they're starving most of the time and yet they have facebook accounts you know and and, and you look at that and then i'm reading another book right now called want and it it's it's about i'm not even i'm not even halfway done with it but the beginning is about two childhood friends who lose touch but one of them kind of facebook stalks her friend to see what she's up to mm. so it's it runs the gamut, but that's something that's that's something interesting that I've seen over the last couple of years. Interesting and disturbing. Just on that subject for a minute, on the social media itself, do mm -hmm. you think people, or you, and or in general, do they modify their offline behavior in anticipation of how it's going to play on social media? Do do people do do yeah? Authors... Do people in general like do you? I mean. Have we gotten to the, have you gotten to the point or seen how people live their lives in anticipation of how it's going mm. to play on Facebook or on Instagram? I don't know. Um, I'm sure, you know, I, I, I have to say that if I wasn't an, a, a digital entrepreneur, I would not be on social media. 100%. Yeah. I would not be. I hate with a passion social media. Mm. Mm. And I, I resisted for a long time. Uh, joining Facebook and it, and and then um, it was back when I ran my first company. My employees were saying, "You have to, you have no choice but to get on," you know, because I, I was writing all the content and and they were all on social media and they were monitoring all the social media accounts mm. and I just refused to get on. Mm -hmm. And so I was pressured to get on because I had to because we're a brand. And um, 
you know, and, and I, it, it took me a while to get into Instagram uh, and to get on there and to understand how to use it and how it works. Now, now I love it because most of what I Instagram about is I'm Instagramming about other things. I, I always thought that it was about Instagramming your meals and showing everybody all the fabulous things that you're doing. But now that now I know how to use it so that I like to use it. And I used it to talk about the books that I read and the things that I'm mm-hmm. paying attention to, other people's things. Yeah, um, you're very you're very good about elevating other people. There is such a charge around this, like I hate social media with a passion. Let's mm-hmm. just stay there. Can you put your finger on why? Because I I um I don't like people knowing what I'm doing all the time. And I also don't like I, you know, like I said at the beginning of our interview that I love your mission about freedom. And I feel that to have true freedom is to show up exactly how you are, however you happen to be. And social media is about showing up with your best face forward. And I, I just, I, I just philosophically hate that. So I, you know, the this fact is a that productizing people... of the personality. Like yeah. For me, freedom and authenticity are so mm-hmm. deeply connected. And, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is one of the reasons, like, I've started a lot of companies. And I get them from, like, zero to 45 people. Mm-hmm. And then I want to just leave because the minute mm-hmm. you start getting invited to speak or do stuff, you sort of have this responsibility to have right. your shit together. Yeah. And to be, and to, like, you know, have your hair done and to mm-hmm. be nice and upbeat all the time. And, you know, I have the, the heart of creativity is being able to go into the depths mm-hmm. of all of these places of despair and anxiety and like and, and like to I I just did this patent application for an effective care drone. It's a it's a total aside here for a second, mm-hmm. but like I got so pissed about war tech, the idea that you know these huge technologies have been all co opted to create harm, and so I was really like obsessed with this idea. And finally, I said, well, what if I flipped it? And I went into peace tech. Like, how could you use each of these inventions for peaceful mm. means? And peace tech, it. I like that. Peace tech. I tried to invent. So I started, I took the drones that were used for attack and made them effective biomimetic care drones, you know. But to do that requires I sh- that I shut everything down for a couple of weeks and go into a hole and sketch and research and brainstorm. And you cannot be posting pictures, uh, you know, of your... You know, like the the thing that I, yeah, you can't be, I can't be distracted by that stuff. And then the worst part for me is like with Rosebud, Rosebud is both, it triggers people because it's talking about vaginal stuff and it's talking about women and power and it's talking and it's, and it's expensive. So it gets triggers. I can't read the criticism. So I had to hire somebody to read the criticism because my little creative being gets so small in response to those attacks and I know I have a lot to offer. So I feel like buffering myself from the public is the only way that I can create that buffer, that somehow I'm not brave enough or strong enough yet to like take, take, the, take the criticism and create. So that's, that's the reason that I have a love-hate tug with it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to, I don't know. I don't know. I, it, it, it you scroll through a feed and you see just some of the narcissism, idiocy, you know, <laughs> and it just gets your blood pressure up. And, um, but then there are some really amazing things that I've seen and learned and got turned on to from, from the same place. So it's, it's, I have a difficult relationship with it, but I, 
I would much rather simply be a voyeur than to also have to be a participant. And I, I have to necessarily participate because I run a brand and that's just the way it is. So I try to make the best out of it by turning the lens outward rather than um, perpetual selfies. Yeah, I like this. This um, Thank you for that. I like the correlation or the, the, the connection that you're making between uh, authenticity and freedom and, turn, and, and being private, like the mm -hmm. turning the lens outward in some mm -hmm. way is vital to, to keeping your privacy, not publicizing mm -hmm. your whole life. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting. So how did you, it's helpful to hear your process and what a, what a benefit to everybody who can, you know, sort of take, what, what's that thing called in biking when you're riding in somebody's drift? Oh, the, dra the updraft or the slipstream? Yeah, to draft, like where they can ride in your stream. We mm -hmm. can all draft off of your research on the mm -hmm. fiction side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll just go to your list. I'm reading weird stuff right now. I'm reading, I, I've been reading a lot of things about people who have been pioneers who spoke truth to power and then mm. really got, you know, a backlash from the society. Uh, I'm reading mostly nonfiction, though. So I'm um, the book, A Plague of Corruption, which talks about why America doesn't trust science anymore. Mm. It's because there have been so many corrupt interactions between the FDA and industry and false, you know, falsified data uh, taking and putting scientists who identify things that are problems and then uh, snuffing out their research and silencing them through all means possible in order to protect profits. And that this pattern over the last 30 years has caused such a distrust in both the scientists and the government's regulations, whether it's the FDA or the CDC, that we now have this perfect storm around the pandemic and how to restore trust in science. But the book itself tells what could very easily be fictional thrillers about what happened to these researchers over the last 30 or 40 years who found things that weren't, uh, that science didn't like, uh, or that, that industry didn't like, sorry. So that reads like a novel to me. And I'm reading mm. also about um, the first female sexologist in America, Ida Craddock, mm. in the 1890s. And she published sex manuals for wedding for your wedding night and for how to improve your relationship. And she was imprisoned multiple times oh, for brother. smut. <laughs> and, and that the law that imprisoned her, the Comstock law, was named after this guy Comstock, who was the postmaster general. And he persecuted her personally. Like he just had it in for her. And that that law is still today what... It, you know what? What sort of sat behind the the persecution of uh, the early gay rights movement? You know where they were mailing one magazine, the the early gay gay men's magazine, was under this same law. And how much of our history and where we are today is still um, stemming from from things that were have been on the books for hundreds of years? But she's really inspiring. I think a lot of this stuff could be novelized. There's so many little. Uh, beautiful, inspiring characters in history that don't make the headlines, dig them out, and suddenly there's, ah, oh, I get so excited about that stuff, so. Those sound like good books, especially, you know, I, um, the first book that you were talking about, just, we have a distrust, it, it's so ironic that we're, we have the technology to verify anything, right? But right now, mm -hmm. you, 
There's distrust with the press. There's distrust with science. There's distrust with every single thing that you see or hear, possibly because of technology, right? So there's now new technology where you can fake videos and fake. I mean, it's just like I th I feel like future generations are not going to trust anything, even things that they see with their own eyes. They're not going to trust it. This is a. I was sitting and having a conversation with two middle-aged white guys who are both very successful in finance and banking. And they were talking basically about how they didn't trust the government and they didn't trust the banks. And mm -hmm. I was like, just pause for a moment, look around this table. There are six of us and we're all doing fine in the system. And mm -hmm. if you, if you believe that we, if we all believe that these systems have deep corruption, then what do you think is happening? on the fringes where people don't have insider knowledge of how those systems work. It mm -hmm. only has to be worse. And so this question of what will it, is it possible to restore trust? And if so, how? And if not, um, what happens? I love this idea that people become more and more inwardly referential, that they're like, does this feel right to me? Do I know this person? Do I have a history with this person? And that that requires somewhat of a return to intimacy, to local community, to local governance. Like I see a lot of people who are disillusioned with federal politics uh, trying to look for a lever where they can re-enter locally. These protests do it, going to city council meetings. Mm -hmm. People who've been completely disaffected are re-engaging locally. And there's something sweet and promising in that, I, you know, for, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> because I tend I, to go on the optimist side. Well, I, I think maybe that is where, it, hopefully, maybe that is where it will come from, um, a return to trust on, on a very local level. But if you look what's happening with our, I'm on the board of, um, of uh, Center for Investigative Reporting. And if you look what's happening with our, with our local newspapers. Well, for people who don't know about that, can you talk a little bit about the, the center, what it's doing, and uh, and and this trend that you're saying that there, you know, there was ProPublica. There's some other people that are trying to counteract the commercialization of reporting. Can you just speak a little bit more about what's happening there? The Center for Investigative Reporting is um, it is actually one of the oldest media organizations in the in the country that. Um, Let's see how how, how do I how do I how do I talk about the Center for Investigative Reporting? Well, they, they're now called Reveal, and you can find their their website at revealnews.org. They they have a website, a public radio program, a podcast, and it's and they the Center for Investigative Reporting gives us um, investigative, real, true investigative journalism. So I, I don't have anything against bloggers, but you can't just rely on a blogger aggregating other people's information and putting it up there as 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 news. And so um, I was I, I think what we were talking about right before I got cut off was about how newspapers around the country have have gone under. They've either been consolidated or they've gone under I, something like 1400 local newspapers have gone under. And, and what happens when you have local newspapers going under is that local media has typically been the watchdog for what's going on with local government. And when you take that away, uh, you know, 
things things can just run wild and rampant corruption and no one's watching so the work i joined the board of of center for investigative reporting because they set the highest journalistic standards they they win peabodys they they shine a light on injustice and protect the most vulnerable in our society um and you know the more the more we can funnel attention and money to real investigative journalism and not just not just read what people are tweeting about but actually having journalists put the time in to to investigate a story i mean just think about how that's going away it just it pains me there's something about the time element and not being addicted to the news cycle uh, that is both important on the supply side of the fact finding and being willing to follow a story for a long time and it's also important on the demand side like i as a consumer of news have to disenroll myself in the daily news cycle and to look for and listen for the longer arc truths and put patterns together there. So I feel there's there's both are important to come together. Like what am I as an individual doing to keep the new, this, this current iteration of how we learn of current events alive? What am I doing to support it psychically, um, energetically? How do I play into it? Do I do I hang on every word of the of the latest presidential gaslighting tweet uh, and then ain't it awful and then bury my head in the sand? Mm -hmm. Or or I do I look for a longer arc and how do I engage? Does that make mm -hmm. sense to you? Like yeah. what does the reader or the consumer do to shift away from being bludgeoned by the news cycle mm -hmm. into being uh, more present for what's real? Well, you know, here's the thing. It's like what's easier to eat, a uh, Big Mac or growing your own food in your garden, you know, and I, and I say that just because, you know, the fast food of tweets and cult of personality reporting where you have, you have these talking heads, these pundits uh, constantly talking about this and that, and, and it's, and it's addictive to just watch that and think that that's your news and investigative journalism is some of these stories take years to, to uncover and, and to report on. And so to, to change the nation's appetite from the quick and dirty tweets, and, and it's kind of, you know, it's also schadenfreude. You're, you're, people are just used to, they have short attention spans and we're being trained every single day by just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through feeds. And we like to scroll, scroll, scroll through our news and to, to read a 14 page story or, or more than six paragraphs of something now is, people find taxing and annoying, right? But unless we have true investigative reporting going on and, and the Center for Investigative Reporting or Reveal News, it's a it's a it's a non it's a nonprofit organization that to support organizations like this and to support investigative journalism is force, I would say, <laughs> sane people interested in the truth, we should all be supporting supporting these organizations and um and that you know I, I the last thing i need to do is join a board but i did join this board because without 
without investigative journalism, without getting to the bottom of things. Um, and you know, with, with Reveal News and with the Center for Investigative Reporting, they don't care who you are. You could be a Democrat, a Republican, a, a, a Green Party. If you're doing something wrong, they're going to find out about it and they're going to write about it. And so that's, you know, that's what I'm, that's really what I am looking for, what I believe in and what I try to, really what, what I try to read and what I try to follow rather than just following the latest quick fix. And, but it takes a lot more work and it takes a lot more discipline. Yeah, I think your point about the Big Mac or the homegrown kale or whatever, yeah. that makes it seem like an impossibility. Yeah. Um, but there's got to be somewhere in between. Like maybe maybe Reveal News is something like the healthy food delivery apps, you know, yeah. where they, they uh, basically give you what you need and make it as convenient as the Big Mac. They are and starting I, I to. I like that idea. Yes, they are starting to. And, and, that, and I think that the, the, the Reveal program that um, is also on NPR and public radio is a good way to get your feet wet with. Okay, well, I'll put that in the notes to this. Good. The, show, it's, the link to Reveal News and the show, yeah. the NPR show. And, it's so and important. Like it's just so important. And I'm just trying to garner support wherever I can. Uh, so that people know about revealnews.org. And so um, th that's that's part of what I'm doing. I, I You know, it, since we're a few months away from an election and we're in the middle of a pandemic and it just, the depression I feel sometimes when I can't even get out of bed is just feeling helpless, right? It's like I felt helpless before this and now that we can't even leave our houses, it we feel even more helpless. But I try to channel my energy into things where I feel uh, are making a difference like reveal news and um, like get the vote out and represent.us. I'm just trying to look for things right now that I can put my energy towards letting my plat using my platform to let people know about, about these ways where we can engage civically and um, sanely to combat all the all of the alternative facts <laughs> that are going on right now. Thank you for doing that. Yep. Good use of your platform. The question for most people should be, what is mine to do? Mm -hmm. You know, that way you don't get completely overwhelmed. Like with what you're saying, like my partner is doing a lot with uh, gerrymandering and yeah. the right to vote kind mm -hmm. of things because that's foundational to hearing the true desires of all the people. Uh, and so, so he's working on that. And every time some other spike, uh, adrenaline cortisol spiking thing happens, mm -hmm. he just says, that's not mine to do. Yeah. I acknowledge that. That's not mine to do. Mm -hmm. This is mine to do. And then goes off and invests some more time in that. That's great. So it's beautiful that, you know, both in media, your love for journalism, your love for truth telling, authenticity, freedom, that this is what yours to do. Do you have any do you have any personal strategies when the other stuff spikes you and from to stop the eye rolling? Hmm. <laughs> no, I don't even know that you do that. That's a projection. Oh, I do. Uh, <laughs> how can you not? <laughs> well, I love what you said about about knowing what's yours to do and what's not, um, and feeling this 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 feeling of helplessness to really figure out what can be yours to do. Right, so. I would say that my my career has been spent on 
I would say I would characterize it as as like pretty lightweight. Um, I wouldn't even call it journalism, but you know, lightweight fun content, which which started to become more meaningful as I got older. So Splendoro definitely was like Sex in the City, just like fun times, shopping, and as I as I grew older, um, it, a lot of my content started moving more towards more lifestyle, wellness, well-being, things focused on well-being. But I, I can't say I've ever been a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool journalist. And for me to join Center for Investigative Reporting and to focus on, on, on investigative journalism was, is like the other side of the coin for me. And I suppose maybe that's a good way to find, if you're feeling helpless, to find what is yours to do, to look at what you are doing already and either do more of it if it's for the public good or find the other side of your coin. You know, so you and I were talking in the beginning. Um, I have friends who are retailers or, you know, some friends who own bars and hospitality right now, and they're trying to figure out what's the other side of their coin. And so a lot of my friends who are in the hospitality business have turned their hospitality into helping people who don't have jobs right now, um, the homeless people who are losing their jobs and, and using their hospitality expertise to try to feed and help them. And so it's, you know, I think that's what we're going to have to do during this time is try to find like, what's the, what's the other side of what we can be doing, no matter what we, what we were doing pre-pandemic. Yeah, this friend of mine, Carla Rubin, who I met through the Summit community, uh, she is a caterer in New York. She does big, mm -hmm. fancy parties, for, you know, for Fenty and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. when the pandemic came, all of her people were out of work. And she switched to putting a COVID-compliant kitchen in place and then mm -hmm. doing meals for all of the first responders and healthcare workers that people from all over the country could buy a meal for a family of four for a frontline person. And they would package up these amazing meals and drop them off at the home of the mm -hmm. doctors and nurses or whatever. And, uh, you know, in that process, not only was she actually doing good, but this feeling of woe is me, victimization, mm -hmm. I have no power, went away. And her example uh, prompted so many other people to do a similar program in other cities that was just in New York. Or like the whole mask-making thing that people jumped on. You know, mm -hmm. my daughter is a fashion designer. She makes beautiful bridal gowns. And the minute that this happened, people started canceling their wedding. But they still have all these sewing machines and hand-tooling capacities. And that's what they did. They made a 1,000 masks and you know, got them out. So I feel like that's all beautiful. So that mm. was like the first wave. Um, and then this other thing that you're talking about, which which is not just age, you know, from sort of the playful, fun stuff to more wellness. I feel that that journey you're talking about also mimics what's happened in the collective consciousness in America in the last 20 or 30 years. It's like we were kind of goofing off in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then it sort of turned into like, eh, maybe we should focus more on some wellness and larger arc infrastructure things. And now it, the conversations are much more fundamental about what is a person, uh, what is a citizen, what is our value, what is our the relationship between freedom and responsibility to one another, what is justice, is all this stuff that I was having fun with or building my personal wellness on built on a foundation that can sustain itself, or do I have to turn my attention elsewhere. And this sort of waking up process seems very tangible right now. And, and, and you mentioned the beginning, exciting. 
I've never seen so many people engaged mm -hmm. in the questions of justice and freedom mm -hmm. and fairness as mm -hmm. there are now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and it's not a new thought, but maybe it is because we're all, well, most of us are our home and, and we're in a state of mind where we can actually pay attention. Being home, um, how's that been for you? It's actually been great. You know, but I, but again, I was talking to another friend of mine. I, I feel guilty and feel lucky. And, you know, I love where I live. And we had just moved before the pandemic happened. And I have a view of the Bay. You know what I mean? It's, I feel terrible about it. At the same time, I feel very lucky. And I, I, um, I am a natural, I guess I'm an introvert. And, but I present as an extrovert when I need to. And um, I love being home. And plus, Amy and I have worked from our own homes for the last five years, so, and Zoomed all the time since 2015, so this is nothing new to us. Um, but I feel bad for my kids, because they are, they're young, they're 11 and 14, and they are really missing their friends. Yeah, the kids seem to miss it the most. I'm, I found that I was confronted with how I use my busyness and my movement to avoid quiet. And despite active meditation, how much I was addicted to the constant interaction and the movement. And that the first few weeks were a relief and then it was difficult. And I mimicked it by doing these outdoor journeys. Mm -hmm. I still was getting activity, even though it was more isolating. But it caused a, a deeper confrontation with where is there is there anything that's not an in integrity in our life you know anything that doesn't fit anything we've been avoiding all of that bubbled right up to the surface over mm -hmm. the over these intervening months and i it's it's happening individually and as it's happening individually i'm seeing those same kind of questions like what doesn't work bubbling up in the culture and it could never have happened if we didn't have space to think about it and feel into it so uh who knows what, what will happen, but I just don't feel like it's going back to anything re resembling the old normal. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope so. You know, I, I feel that human beings seem to have a very short memory. <laughs> and, um, and so I do hope that when things properly open up next year, sometime next year, I, you know, can you imagine, do you remember the beginning of quarantine? You thought, oh my gosh, how are we going to be in our houses until May or April, right? <laughs> and now it's yeah. July and now we're thinking it seems like we're going to be in until the end of the year, at least, at least it does in California. Yeah, I feel that was, um, I was talking to a epidemiologist, Brandon, they said basically March of next year, you should mm -hmm. count on. Right. But that economically and emotionally will have changed the world so much yeah. um, that the, the dance of how, how we might reinvent and what we're going to reinvent, uh, there's just a lot of potential in that. And also because in times of change, the human reaction is to do, um, is to cling. Like if you haven't done your inner work and you're not brave and able to be resilient in the face of change, then you cling and grasp, and that's where you get extremism. Mm. So it's also kind of a risky time. Um, so I'd like to just 
talk a little bit more around this idea of creativity and sourcing solutions by being in a learning mode mm. that we started with. You know, the where you said you're reading a book a day and mm -hmm. it's a lot of fiction and the fiction is pointing you toward uh, trends in the society and also mm. um, insights into the way humans function. And so what would you recommend for others who want to live in sort of a more curious, creative, open manner? Well, I, I, I always say, I when I used to give a lot of talks about what it means to be a perennial that's a term that i coined back in 2016 i wrote a very small article called meet the perennials basically um coming up with a neologism to describe a my a group of people who share a, a mindset of growth learning um understanding that th things will be back even if you're having a down period it will be back and and you basically choose when you're going to be back. You're not going to, it's not about now you're 65, so you have to retire. You don't follow a track. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a self-selecting term perennial. And, and to my extreme surprise, the, the article went viral and it's, and continues to, it went, it was translated 11 languages. It was written about something like 60 different times over the last four years. And, um, and, people have come up to me and said well if i'm not feeling like a perennial if i if i don't always feel relevant and i feel like life has passed me by how can i spark my perenniality and i always say that it, it sparking your curiosity starts with wondering what just what are you curious about you know everybody is curious about something it could be something totally inane or it could be something deep, but to write down 10 things you're curious about. Um, for me, I think it was right before I started the what, I was curious about physics, photography. Um, I was curious about, I don't know, there were three other, there were three other things I was curious about. And then I just started doing the research. So to, 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 jumpstart your curiosity by writing down the things that you're curious about and then start doing the research and see where it takes you and to talk to as many people as you can about your curiosities and, and, and to get out there. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I, what I did is I, I made a list for myself and I, I tried to talk to at least three people a week, three, mm. three people who I found, that I respected, that I looked up to, that I that I found inspiring, or someone who was always doing something kind of interesting, and I would just chat with them about what they're up to, and um, tell them what I was up to. Which at the time, when I, right before I started the what, I was I was in between gigs and just feeling t just I just felt so bad about myself. You know, I had I had no purpose. I had no reason to get out of bed in the morning, and um, and so. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think your question was, how do you encourage people to be curious? Was that it? It's, it's. I mean, this is great information and very practical approaches. It was uh, how to find, like when you're stuck, whether it's yeah. personally or in your business or in mm -hmm. your family, um, you had talked at the beginning about being open to creative insight and uh -huh. creative solution, whether that's through learning or 
Uh, and, and I like that you took it to this place, a very personal place of if I'm feeling flat, if I'm feeling irrelevant, if I'm feeling like, oh, I don't know what I'm here to do, to get curious about that and then to get curious about what you're curious about mm-hmm. and then to reach out and talk to people, which inherently has a component of having no outcome. Like you don't have to be good at it. Yeah. You don't have to make it a career. Mm-hmm. You just want to learn. Like that learning in and of itself is an intrinsic good and that if you trust the process of learning, it might take you to completely new places. Mm-hmm. It might not. You might learn it, master it, or not even master it, be done with it. Your curiosity might wane. But there's something in the way you run your life that seems to allow for an invitation to solution or uh, the unexpected insight or a, you know, a left field win that uh, doesn't get stuck in the victim or awful mentality Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. when things seem difficult you don't shut down when things seem difficult you go whoa what's the opportunity here what's new here so that i'm very curious about that right i I, i've always been a person who wonders a lot and so I'm, i'm i'm constantly wondering about things so when i'm like you know i i i was talking to a friend the other day and i said oh my gosh i must be really depressed or something I was I got out of bed and I I saw my cat walking by and I looked at my cat and it was it was basically the same day as every day um and I just thought that look look what life what is a life we just wake up you know we go pee in the morning we see our cat walk by then we're gonna die (laughs) really I really was thinking that the other day just just life is just a, a series of moments and then you're dead um but I, you know, I, I think that learning and curiosity has always been very central to what makes me tick. And I'm just always wondering about, not necessarily about how to fix things or um, I think just wondering about what I'm wondering about. So if I'm, if I'm feeling pretty depressed about how insane it is to me that, that uh, a a commenter on one of my Facebook posts, I, I wrote something, I posted something funny about wearing a mask. And someone posted something like, um, what the hell? This, you know, you do know that breathing carbon dioxide is a lot more dangerous than catching the virus. And I'm like, what the, I mean, I just couldn't even, I was so annoyed that, um, you know, rather than just like sink down into depression about uh, how crazy it is that people don't even believe that masks can make a difference or that COVID is just not really that big of a deal. Um, I was, you know, I just, I just went online and I started reading up about what Fauci is against, um, what's going on with him right now, what's going on with how many, how many people are wearing masks. I was, I was actually surprised yesterday when I was driving through San Francisco. I, I don't really leave the house that often, but I had to drive my mom to an appointment. And I was so excited that everybody on the street, at least the streets that I happened to be driving down, were wearing masks. Even a, even a person on a bicycle was wearing a mask. Um, so, I, so I started just, you know, I was just curious about like what the numbers are looking like in the state of California. I started looking at data modeling sites about, you know, about what's going on. So rather than just feel hopeless that there's people who are denying what's going on and just thinking that all the numbers that we're seeing are all fake and phony. I, 
I just started doing more research about what the reality is and looking at sites that I can trust mm. from people that I can this trust. A great tactic. And that makes me feel out better. Look, yeah. Yeah. You zoom out, you look at what the, the bigger picture, what's real, what is the, what did the numbers show me? I think, did you read, have you, you're not doing nonfiction. I recommended this book to someone else. It's called Humankind. It came out in, in April. Oh, and okay. it's a revisiting of all of the studies that say that humans are basically uh, corrupt and unkind and that all the kindness disappears when we hit crisis. Oh, my. It says absolutely not. Look, re goes back to the original, investigates the original data behind things like the Milgram report. What was that? That the researchers presented it falsely. That was the prisoner study at Stanford. Remember oh, right. that? Uh -huh. and, and basically, chapter by chapter breaks down all of the arguments of humans being um, basically on the verge of unkindness at the at the first touch of chaos and says that's absolutely not true. Oh, Look right. So that was like the, about ruthlessness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ruthlessness. Mm -hmm. And said that was totally engineered. And when the researcher later was confronted with the, re the engineering, he said it's the most popular psychological experiment in modern history. Mm -hmm. And the most copied and the most referenced, and I'm not going back on it now, oh, but the actual data doesn't support it. So, uh, but then we internalize these views of human nature. So to your point about like somebody's uh, a fringe behavior, fringe activist, counter mask activist, and they're getting a lot of attention, mm -hmm. but what is the reality? The reality is most of our friends are wearing them. Mm -hmm. If you're out in public, people are being very respectful. They're social distancing, they're doing their best. And that reality is not only um, gives you a, a more truthful uh, version, a, a more realistic and fact-based version, but it also shifts the way you're able to respond when you see these edge people. So that's a, a great tactic. I wanted to also um, make another recommendation to anyone who is uh, experiencing this sort of, well, let's call it Gina's Cat Day experience. <laughs> On Gina's cat day, when she's like, what's the point? We just pet our cat and nothing else happens. Um, I read Kate Zambrino's Drifts. Uh, have you seen this? It's a novel that came out, I don't know, relatively recently. And she's supposed to be writing this novel for like seven years. She's under contract to write this novel. And she just can't do it. And so all over her house are post-it notes. And she basically sits there and she does the same things every day, waiting for the novel to strike her. But that's the whole novel is and and the deeper she goes into the minutia of her everyday life the the more you get to know her and she becomes a real person and so the the other thing is like sinking into what if this is all there is like mm -hmm. uh there's a a, a a novel called the peregrine which is just a novel about a guy who watches a bird and he watches the bird every single day. And, and he be, he knows the bird so well by the end of the novel that he becomes the falcon, mm. you know, and this question of do the what if that is all there is, mm -hmm. you know, our direct experience and our enjoyment of the small things, the big things, the reality of our own life. And all we're doing is reflecting it back uh, and appreciating it. Uh, what if there's nothing to do? So. Kate Zambrino. I forget who wrote The Peregrine. I'll find out. Anyway, books, books, books. These Those sound like great books. They're, I have, I took a, one of my COVID things. Look, I'm a writer. I'm not a great writer. I'm a decent writer. I'm also a writer that uh, 
has never studied. So unlike you, like I haven't done any literature classes. I, I just am self-taught. And so I decided to take a writing class over this period. And I found, um, I had read an article in the Paris Review called The Bread is Over, Fuck the Bread, <laughs> uh, by this um, amazing woman, uh, Sabrina Mark. And she, I went to her site to read more of her stuff. And it turns out she's having this online class. Only eight people. I sign up. We get in there. We get our first assignment. And uh, I get, and we're supposed to read everybody else's work. So you get to assign it, get the work, go and read their work. And the other people in the class's work is amazing. So I go stalk them online. They're all like professors of literature. But the inner cult of writers who love words and who love writing um, is so tender. And uh, it's a whole nother universe to enter into. So that that was what I was curious about. And in the process, like I felt so humbled about what it would take to become an excellent writer and just to bow down to their skill and to take their tips and hints. But the humility of, of like seeing what true expertise looks like was really refreshing. It felt so sweet to surrender to that. What an amazing class. Yeah, she was she was amazing. Um, yeah, there's one woman in the class who was grieving. And so she went to rent a house in rural, rural Virginia, like way deep in the woods and where there are bears and the only other people who come are like weekend experts from the CIA. And they come out on the weekends to get uh, relief from their day jobs. And so the rest of the time she's alone all the time and talk about a cat day, you know, sort of her. So she's writing these stories, sitting alone in this house, and all of these details from being in the woods and being with nature are there. But the other thing that's in all of her writing are these narratives and small stories of all of the friends and people who come to her mind. So even though she's alone, she is more with people than most people I know who are with people. So she's, it's, that to me is also like this, this the beauty of solitude, the beauty of being sheltering in place is there's so much still alive of others in us all the time. Um, and who are you summoning? My teacher, Thomas Hubel, mm. says that you that every person has a, a virtual IP address in time space. And that every time you think of them, you're like, bing, bing, pinging their IP address. So like every time I think of Gina, I'm like sending a little of my consciousness and energy to you. And it's the same way towards others. And and that um, in that way, they're made real and they're made permanent in us. And it collapses time space in a way. I love that. Pinging, pinging someone else's IP address. That is that is beautiful. <laughs> and that you're and that this piece of this, like justify it back into the journalism thing is like when you are are continually pinging some gaslighting news thing, mm -hmm. that's where you're sending energy also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how do you like it, part of the reclaiming of our individual power? is to choose what we're going to consume and where we're going to send our energy. Yep. Um, so I am going to make a donation to Reveal News and oh, send more excellent. energy to things. Oh that my have gosh, that, stamp. that is unbelievable. And then we're going to and we're going to publicize this and uh, and and put our energy towards creativity and learning and positive solutions um, and having faith in our fellows that we all are longing for the same kinds of things: acceptance, security, love, creativity. And, uh, and that we're not as different as uh, some of these divisive forces would have us think. I love that. I love that.
I thank you. That's that's so wonderful. It's just you thank know you. we've I've been talking to several board members and we were we were just trying to figure out how can we how, how can we let more people know about the the important work that that we do at Reveal News and you know by the Center for Investigative Reporting and it's just been difficult especially during the pandemic because people are just running scared freaking out holding on to their holding on to their eggs you know and um so it's great it's great i i did not mean to talk about this today but it's great that we did <laughs> hey could you put in the chat also the link to your book lists yes i you know what i so far um i have my old book list from from last year but i'm publishing my new one next week oh perfect. and for now the, the um i i published episodically on instagram the books that i'm reading so today i i talked about a book that i'm reading about the environment that i finished about climate change which i loved and it was fiction and it was called mm. um the end of the ocean i just love that book mm. and it's a okay. book that that toggles between two stories one about a 60 something uh Norwegian environmental activist who goes, it's, it's so fascinating because she talks about how she just feels totally invisible as a 60 year old woman. And so because of that, she takes advantage of that by wreaking some pretty big havoc by throwing some ice icebergs like off a ship, you know, she goes completely unnoticed and sailing her boat away. And it toggles between that story in 2017 or 18 or something. And then with a story in the future about a man and his daughter in France running from war, famine, and and the result of of a climate disaster in France, and that there are these countries called the water countries that are the only countries that are viable. So it's it's really fascinating about what's going to happen if we continue to value um, money over our planet. Um, all right. Well, I have my reading. I'm going to have my reading cut out for me. Yeah, we, there's so, so many books so, to read, but luckily so we have a lot of time to do it. such a lovely, and Amy's lovely. You're just, I adore you. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world? So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day, no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. See you next time. <laughs>